just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is Young Chang, the author as everybody will remember, of the multi-zillion selling Wild Swans and subsequently of an enormously authoritative biography of Mao. Her new book is called Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister, Three Women at the Heart of 20th Century China. But these are not Wild Swan type women. These are, you know, who are ordinary women. These are women who are the absolute heart of the Chinese 20th century. They are the Remarkable Sung sisters. And can you start by just explaining a little about who these three women were? These three sisters from the Sung family were born in the late years of the 19th century. And they were born in Shanghai. Their parents were devout Christians and they were all educated in America. They came back to China and um, they made extraordinary marriages. Uh, one married Red Sister, Qingling, married Sun Yaxian, who in the Chinese-speaking world is regarded as father of China. Little Sister Meiling married Chiang Kai-shek, the leader of the nationalist China, and she was the first lady of nationalist China for 22 years, and then the first lady of Taiwan. And big sister Eileen made herself one of the richest women in China, and her husband was Chiang Kai-shek's prime minister and finance minister for many years. Big sister and little sister were at the core of Chiang Kai-shek's regime. In fact, the big sister was like Chiang Kai-shek's closest advisor. And red sister Qingling rose to become Mao's vice chair and um, was the honorary president of China when she died. And having written the books you'd written previously, what was it that brought you to these Three Women as a Subject. When my last book, A Biography of Empress Dowager Cixi, was published, I was thinking about my next subject. And at the time, I resisted the idea of writing about the Song Sisters because they were very much fairy tale figures and unreal figures. And there is a cliche, well-known cliche, which says, and there were three sisters in China, one loves money, one loves power, and one loves the country. Um, so instead, I decided to write about Sun Yaxian. I wanted to write about another program setter, somebody who made policies and changed the course of China, the history of China. And Mao, both Mao and Cixi, the Empress Dowager, were policy makers. And Sun Yaxian was also one. And he was a kind of bridge between the Empress Dowager and Mao. 
And so I started to write about him. But after I've gathered a lot of materials, I lost interest in him because I felt he was too single-mindedly focused on power. He was entirely driven by the pursuit of power. And in a way, that's uninteresting. I mean, I wrote about Mao. You know, I spent 12 years of my life writing about Mao. And and there is a sense of deja vu. And so I... um, But instead, his wife, Sun Yat-sen's wife, and her sisters emerged as really interesting and extraordinary. And I discovered a lot of things about them which made them alive. And they become real human beings to me. And I'm sort of fascinated. And I decided to change my subject to the three sisters. And these three sisters, I'm interested in what the received ideas of them were. You know, you said you grew up with them as fairy tale figures, you know, one loved power, one loved money, one loved her country. Presumably, when you were growing up, the one who loved her country was held to be Ching Ling, (laughs) um, Red Sister. Yes. But... Were were the other two, you know, obviously the other two were essentially on the nationalist side. They were associated with Kuomintang and with Taiwan. Were they seen as villains? I mean, how was the ideological shaping of these three sisters? Yes, big sister and little sister were seen at my time growing up in China in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. They were villains. There was a well-known story that little sister bathed every day in milk to make her skin good. And uh, we all firmly believed the story. And I remember one day a teacher tried to correct this um, image, this, this sort of myth. And he said, do you really think bathing in milk is pleasant? And soon, of course, he was condemned as a rightist um, in you know one of Mao's political campaigns. Didn't um, take much. But now, I mean, things have changed. And then China wanted to court Taiwan to bring Taiwan into its fold, and so they were not too harsh on the two, than the big sister and the little sister. Yeah. And in terms of what you were able to discover to get to the heart of their stories. Mm. What sort of sources were available and how did they change, if you like, the received or the official story of them? And there are a lot of materials about the three sisters. And they were all educated in America. So American archives and libraries played a big role in my research. And I can't tell you what a relief this is um, having done research in the biography of Mao and Empress Dowager, and because the archives were so helpful. I mean, the sisters' colleges have their archives. Chiang Kai-shek, for example, wrote a diary for 57 years and every day. And his diaries are in at Hoover Institute in Stanford. And uh, there were a lot of oral history materials at um, Columbia University, lots of archives. In Britain, the National Archives at Kew also had a lot of materials on particularly Sun Yat-sen. How, how easy was it to find the sisters' voices, their own words or their own viewpoints? The sisters wrote a lot. They wrote um, 
letters. I mean, in those days, people wrote letters constantly, and they wrote loads and loads of letters. And those those letters were extremely revealing. And there were a lot of these letters.、Um, of course, I mean, Taiwan is a major source. Taiwan. Being a democracy has opened its archives, and even in mainland China, there has been a lot of research on the sisters, and a lot of things were published. Um, so I, I, I can approach all these sources with you know extraordinary ease compared to、um, how I did my research about Mao, particularly. Is, I mean, how would you characterize? Is it to an Somebody on the outside, an awful lot of this seems sort of astonishing. That well, I mean, in the first place, that these three women should have ended up, you know, of all people, at the centre. You know, it was a sort of accident of history that one of them was married to Chiang Kai-shek and one of them was married to Sun, and one of them, you know, and also even Sun Yat-sen, who in your earlier chapter you describe him, he, he comes over as almost a sort of comic figure. He's not a, he's not this, you know. An important man in any sort of regime, and he goes to Hawaii and he has some ideas about republicanism, and he comes back and he decides to sort of foment a revolution against the Manchu dynasty, and kind of succeeds. I mean, how does how does that? You know, one thinks of China as an enormous place with huge structures of power, and he more or less just sort of phones up a friend who's, you know, a gangster and knows some people they can call. How does that work? I mean, I'm, I'm burlesquing it a little, but it seems extraordinary that these huge movements seem to turn on such. Well, that that is often the case in history. Some in extraordinary、um, changes happen and triggered off by seemingly insignificant、um, events. And what one thing that most extraordinary to me was how Sun Yat-sen came to be. Regarded as the father of China, and it's all because of the of one fact that he was the first man to promote republicanism, and he picked up the idea of republicanism in Hawaii. He happened to be in Hawaii at the time when Hawaii became a republic. And republicanism was on everybody's lips, and we're talking about the end of nineteenth century. And so he got the idea, and of course he pursued it doggedly for decades. Now he was not a comic figure. I mean, there is a view that which tended to portray him as a comic figure, but I th- absolutely not. I mean, he sometimes rather fermented this. Image himself for his political goals, but in fact he was a dead serious figure, and he kind of deserved the title of the father of China,、uh, for good or bad. But China was ripe for republicanism, and the main reason was that the Manchu dynasty was regarded as a foreign rule. Um, they were Manchus. They were one percent of the population, and they had conquered China in the 17th century from the north. So foreign rule has got to end, and that was a consensus of many people. And it was not. It was this was no accident. And what is the what is accident is, is if any other Republican had promote had been promoting republicanism first. 
other than Xinjiang, and China might have taken a different course of evolvement because of Xinjiang's ambitions and the extent he would go to fulfill his ambitions. Uh, he introduced Soviet communism, Leninism into China to help himself, and which led to eventually um, a communist China. Well, one of the things that's interesting in that respect, though, is that you, you write in the book, I think, Sun was not a Bolshevik. He was using Bolshevism, he was using Leninism, he was using Russia as a sort of lever for his own purposes. But of course, Ching Ling, after he dies, mm. goes on to be very much in bed with Russia. Do you think she was a true believer? I think he, she was. I mean, she a turning point was 1922 when she had this near-death experience thanks to her husband and the life she chose. And I think that played a big role in her becoming a hardened Leninist. And it was also in that year she met with Soviet emissaries in China and she was under their influence, particularly Borodin. And um, then she went into exile in Russia after Chiang Kai-shek seized the leadership of the Nationalist Party and broke from the Russians and the Chinese communists. And when she was in Russia in 1927-28, she witnessed firsthand Stalin's power struggle with uh, Trotsky. And the Soviet emissaries in China um, were sent to the gulag, driven to suicide, and suffered appallingly. And they, they all had to, the old friends couldn't speak to each other. And so she was, uh, she was baptized by this purge culture, which kind of immuned her, in a way, to the subsequent purges under Mao. And she could live with those purges because she had, you know, back in the 1927-28, she had seen it all, although, of course, of different degrees. Now, the, obviously, this does beg the very you know, central question in a way is how did they negotiate this as a family? I mean, it makes the difficulties of the Johnson families or even the Mitfords look like, you know, bagatelles, you know, one of them was Maharaj Chiang Kai-shek. One of them was, you know, with the enemy. What's yes, and yet they didn't. How did they negotiate that? How did their personal relationships? Well, to start it? with, I think their family was a very close knit family. They were genuinely devoted to each other. The 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 sisters, and they also got on with each other on the personal level. They liked each other. They were f tremendously fond of each other. And they had memories like, you know, Mei Ling went to America as a child. She was nine years old. She was brought to America and looked after along the way by her sister, red sister, Qing Ling. So they, they had a lot of affections to each other. And then, yet, of course, and Qing Ling then devoted her life in destroying, in a way, the lives of her sisters. But I think 
what's ex extraordinary was that they respected each other's beliefs. Mading said even in, before she died in the later years of her life, and she had enormous respect for her red sister, who sort of a kind kind of stood up to a mighty force, which was Chiang Kai-shek's regime, and risked the assassinations, and. So they, they sort of respected each other's beliefs and that they also needed each other to survive. So there was a lot of uh, calculation in their relationships as well because Qingling, Red Sister, was the most vocal critic of Chiang Kai-shek under Chiang Kai-shek's rule. And Chiang Kai-shek had contemplated car accidents for her. Yes, but he didn't. But he didn't carry it through because he was worried about uh, his wife, uh, his wife's reaction. And didn't he write a letter that he then framed? Yes. Which is, I, I think she's in Moscow at the time, isn't she? And she denounces him really fiercely. And I think that's so fierce that no newspaper will publish it. That's right. And yes. they drop it as leaflets. Yes, yes. And and she was in Shanghai. Oh, she was in Shanghai. She was in Shanghai, but she told the Moscow line. And there was, and absolutely right, and Chiang Kai-shek was furious. And in fact, a lot of, there was a lot of nationalistic feelings against her. But she knew that her survival depended on her sister's. Uh, her sister's support. So she she always kept a very good relationship with her sisters. And um, on the side of Chiang Kai-shek and the two and the little sister and the big sister, they also needed the Sun Yat-sen's prestige to claim legitimacy. Because Chiang Kai-shek was the first Republican to come to power without an election. I mean, one thing that astonished me was that the fact that the young republic from after 1912 to 1928, when Chiang Kai-shek seized the power, in those years, China was a functioning democracy. And there were general elections, the presidents were elected, there were parliaments, there was an independent judiciary, and there were completely free press. And, and actually, you know, there was a lot of, um, the country was living in tremendous freedom and um, development. And Chiang Kai-shek ended all that. He established a dictatorship, and he needed legitimacy and he claimed Sun Yat-sen, the father of republic, for his legitimacy. So in that sense, he also they also had to be nice to Qingling, <laughs> Madame Sun. Just a little yeah. bit. Mm. Do you think that their relationship, I mean, you said you know, politics sort of shaped their relationship. Did their relationship shape, relationships shape politics as well, do you think? I mean, do you think the, the course that the history took would have been different, say, I mean, had Sun lived... Or had they not had, you know, essentially had had the nationalists and the communists not had a family relationship? Not in the sense of drastically changing the course of history in China, but little sister and big sister did make did have benign influence on Chiang Kai-shek. They converted Chiang Kai-shek to Christianity which led to his rule becoming much more benign. And so there were good influence on Chiang Kai-shek. I think Red Sister 
played little role in shaping Mao's policies. For、um, the better. No, played little, very little. Oh, played. Role. Sorry, played, played very little. Very role, little right, right. role. She made no policy. She was more like the a graceful face for the regime, and she did what she was told to do. Yeah, you mentioned Chiang Kai-shek's being, as it were, mellowed by his wife. There's an extraordinary photograph in the book,、hmm. which is a present that he gave her. It's a necklace made out of a mountain. Can you? Yes, explain? I, I mean, was. Chiang Kai-shek, the unexpected romantic. What, you know. Yes, and th- th- this was something that surprised me because his image was this very harsh, hardline, you know, aggressive person. But in fact, he had a very imaginative and romantic side, and their relation, his relationship with his wife,、um, was absolutely extraordinary. Uh, in 1932, he gave Meiling this birthday present, which, as you said, is the neck is the necklace out of a whole mountain. And basically, he imported a lot of French plane trees and planted them in the shape of a, the chains for a necklace around a mountain. And these French plane trees changed color in autumn in a different way. From the local trees, so they stood out. They stand out today in this yellow golden color, forming a distinctive necklace. And the pendant in the middle of the the necklace looks like a like big jewel, and that was a villa for Meiling, and was that was called the Meiling Palace outside Nanjing. The roof of that palace uses certain glass or certain mineral which sparkle in the sunshine, looking like a real jewel. And you know that that necklace was very little known, because you could only see it in a private plane, <laughs> <laughs> flying over. And of course, Chiang Kai-shek. Showed his wife, but nobody else did that. And I think it was only discovered fairly recently, because nobody was allowed to take a private plane tour around over Nanjing. He was not much of a socialist. Yes, this, at least.、Right. Yeah. And and then this apparently this film crew to shoot something else, but discovered it by accident. And and saw this, you know, distinctive. You can see from the picture this gigantic <laughs> necklace, beautiful gigantic necklace, which is a whole mountain. And all these houses were in the middle, buildings were in the middle of the,、um, and inside this necklace. And then then people started to do research and found in the archives how this was built and why and so on. That is extraordinary. And. To give me a sense of how I mean, you know, you said you spent twenty years living, twelve years living with Mao, which can't be wrong. Living with these three women,、hmm. how did you, you know, how how do you feel towards them and about them now? I mean, do you find yourself sympathetic to them? Do you go,、oh, I don't like that one, don't trust her? Do I mean,、hmm. I'm, I'm just interested in biographers. You know, obviously, you're a historian. You're,、hmm. you know, you you write as you find, but how did your research? Make you feel about your subject variously. I feel I've understood them 
much more now and have come to see them as real human beings. Um, that, of course, gives me a lot of sympathy for them. I mean, they have passionate loves, and but hugely let down, and mailing little sister, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, I never knew this before, had suffered a nervous breakdown for, for some years and was in depression, which was why Chiang Kai-shek gave her that necklace, took such trouble to make that birthday present for her, and because she had imagined her married life to be something... Um, and she could use to to do a lot of good for China, as she wrote to her American friend, Emma Mills. But she was surprised because Chiang Kai-shek was so besieged as a dictator, and a lot of assassins were pursuing Chiang Kai-shek, I mean, which means her as well. I mean, these assassins got into her bedroom at night, and as a result, she suffered a miscarriage and was left childless um, for her life. And so there were all there were all this, and how big sister Eileen. I wouldn't, without going too much detail into the book, and how she had this mother-daughter, almost like relationship with little sister, because she was 10 years older, and how she, you know, when she was very corrupt, she made herself one of the richest women in China. And um, she developed a, a conviction that it was God's will for her to come to earth and make a lot of money to provide for her two illustrious sisters. And that's how she believed, how she justified her corruption. And she was deeply religious, which was also interesting to me. I mean, she she prayed all the time. She prayed before she made the investment. So they became human beings to me, and I, I became drawn to him, uh, to them. Having said all that, it is a book that I felt least emotionally involved. I mean, because when I wrote the biography of Mao, because I had lived under Mao, and my father died in the Cultural Revolution, my grandmother died in the Cultural Revolution, inevitably this emotional aspect is visible in my biography. I mean, of course, I'm, you know, I'm fair to Mao. I've done 12 years research. I mean, I, it's not a book to condemn Mao, but to seek to understand him. But there is that emotional element. And when I wrote The Empress Dowager, Tsashi biography, and um, I was struck. I came to write that book because I had discovered when I was writing Wild Swans that she, the Empress Dowager, had banned the foot binding in 1902, foot binding that tortured my grandmother and Chinese women, you know, for a thousand years. And that was a complete uh, revelation, completely different from her usual image of being this tyrant, reactionary, and so on. So I had a lot of sympathy for Empress Dowager Cixi from my research on that book. And I, I sort of came to admire her because she did so much good for China. She brought China into, into the modern 
Western world, and she was committed to build constitutional monarchy with an elected parliament. In a way, you could say that she paved the way for republicanism at the cost of her own dynasty. And so I had a lot of sympathy, and my emotions were very much also, I think, perhaps visible in that biography. And with the two, with the three sisters, I am... Um, there was much less of my own emotions. But of course, I came to appreciate, for example, little sister Mailing's bravery. She was a very brave woman. And once when her husband was kidnapped, she risked her life to go and rescue him. And as a result, she prevented a civil war and that would have torn China apart on the eve of Japanese invasion in 1937, and she did it in 1936. That act, in a way, would have prevented the Japanese conquest of China. So she was very brave, you know, before she walked into the kidnap, and she gave her pistol to the friend with her and asked him to shoot her if the soldiers seized her. Mm, and so, so I had a lot of sympathy for her, and uh, and also she was she was determined to leave Chiang Kai-shek many times, and when Chiang Kai-shek moved to Taiwan, she at first didn't want to go, but I mean. There is some detail in the book. I mean, emotional torment and so on. And she did what she regarded as the right thing, which is to stand by her husband and not to lend ammunition to the communists. And she went to Taiwan and always stood by him. And this was, um, she was quite brave, although she loved luxury. She had 37 servants. In at her an old age when she lived in um, in New York, and um, you know she, she lived for a very her. long time, didn't she? I mean, she, she lived to a hundred and five. She died after nine eleven in two thousand and three. Absolutely uh, yes, yes. And it was extraordinary. And she was. So um, did you ever have any contact with her? Have you ever no, written to her? No. She or? she well, I did try with our biography. I did try to see her, but her friends told me that she declined all interviews, which was true. She never gave interviews. She never talked about herself. I mean, you know, she was, at her time, she was one of the most famous women in the world. I mean, she was on top of the world. She was at Cairo conference with her husband, with Roosevelt and Churchill. She addressed the 30,000 people at the Hollywood Bowl in Hollywood. She addressed the Congress. She was the first woman to address the Congress. And she was a, a, a political figure in her own right, but she never talked about her past glories. She she quoted something from the Bible to the effect that all these were vanities, and she only wanted to be buried with her sister, with her beloved big sister and her family, and didn't want to be buried, buried with Chiang Kai-shek, didn't to be put lying in state in with Chiang Kai-shek. 
Did she, she get her wish? Is she in New York? Yes, she was like, yeah. an, and if you go to New York um, in this cemetery for New Yorkers, and she was there in the ordinary room. Her sister, big sister Eileen, had bought two rooms in this Ferncliff cemetery, and she was in one of them. And at her burial, there was even a glitch. Her casket could not fit into the gap. And so they had to do some demolition on the spot <laughs> to put her coffin in. And this was a far cry from Chiang Kai-shek's own burial, which was meticulously stage managed. And Chiang Kai-shek's coffin, I don't know whether you know this, is lying in state in Taiwan in one of his many former villas. You know, Chiang Kai-shek had 30 villas dotted oh. around Taiwan. So <laughs> spoiled for choice yes. for a resting place. <laughs> and is Qing, is Qingling in Beijing? Qingling was buried in Shanghai in the cemetery with her parents. She said, and there were people who suggested that she should be buried together with Sun Yat-sen. And by the way, Sun Yat-sen's burial ground was in Nanjing. It was this gigantic thing, which he had planned before he died. He wanted to be buried in that mountain next to the first emperor of Ming Dynasty. But she, he, Sun Yat-sen, wanted his tomb to be much, much higher than the Ming Emperor's tomb, and so that, which is the case with this respect. gigantic thing. And uh, he'd laid down many rules. I mean, this was one reason why on his bedside he endorsed a letter to the Soviet Communist Party, which was made him look far more Bolshevik than he really was because he wanted the Russians to teach the nationalists how to do his personality cult. Lenin had died the year before, and the personality cult for Lenin, you know, the Lenin tomb, the bust, the portrait, the elevation to um, godlike status, and all this Sun Yat-sen had registered and wanted to have for himself. And the Russians did tell the nationalists how to do his personality cult. And his tomb, his mausoleum, was part of that. But of course, he, didn't, he couldn't have the transparent coffin because Nanjing was too hot. Yes. <laughs> it wouldn't work for the, for the transparent top. But other than that, the, the full personality cult. And Qingling didn't want to be buried with her husband. She wanted to be buried with her parents. Particularly her mother, she told her adopted daughter she wanted to keep apologizing to her mother because she broke from her mother by becoming a communist. And her mother disapprove of that and in fact tried very hard. In fact I got a letter, you know, the the owner of the letter showed me the letter from Qingling to her mother, which made it clear that she had written many times to her mother and her mother had refused to reply. 
after the mother had failed to get her back from exile in Moscow. And so, so she sort of broke from her, she broke her from her mother. And so, when her mother was dying, she was in exile in Berlin, and she refused to go and see her mother. And so, when she got home, her mother had already died, and she felt she owed her mother this. So she's now buried next to her mother. That's sort of touching. I suppose all families have their little ups and downs. Zhong、mm. Chang, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I want to let you know too about an upcoming event where I'll be talking to Robert Harris about his new novel, The Second Sleep, for a live recording of this podcast. The event takes place on Wednesday, the twenty-third of October, at the Emmanuel Centre in Westminster. You can get tickets at spectatorcouk/events. I very much hope you'll come and join us. 